beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are times in life when we think that we can run away from our problems. People do that in different ways. It usually involves a major change in life. Young people with an unhappy childhood often cannot wait to get out of the family home to try find happiness elsewhere. Those with relationship difficulties often think that separation from a difficult spouse will bring peace to their lives. People with personal problems will at times withdraw from the church because they don't feel like they're accepted. Those who have made a mess of their lives will often physically move away to try and make a new start in life elsewhere. There's times and circumstances where trying to make a new start is a wise thing to do. But what we need to recognize is that we cannot run away from the basic issues facing us in life. For no matter where we go, we take ourselves along. We see this in Judah's life. He grew up in a dysfunctional family where Jacob had children with two wives and with each of their maidservants. Judah was the fourth son of the unloved Leah. Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph caused his brothers much hatred and jealousy. Judah was a leader in suggesting that they sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They deceived Jacob about what they had done by presenting him with uh, Joseph's blood-stained robe and by allowing him to conclude that he'd been killed by a wild animal. At Joseph's death, their father refused to be comforted. Judah knew that he was guilty of proposing to sell Joseph into slavery. Being faced with his father's mourning for his lost son day after day and month after month was oppressive to Judah. So he decided to get out, to move away, to make a new start in life. You cannot make a new start if you don't deal with your issues. Yet Judah was so tired of all the problems facing him in life, he tries to run away from them. While Joseph was forcibly removed from his family, Judah leaves voluntarily. He makes friends with a Canaanite man named Hira from the city of Adullam, about 20 kilometers southwest of Bethlehem. He saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite named Shua and took her and had sex with her. Genesis 38 describes what Judah did to this woman using the same words that were used in Genesis 34 to describe how Shechem seized Dinah and lay with her. We see that while Judah runs away from his family problems, he creates a whole new set of problems for himself. Judah did not just turn his back on his family. He also turned his back on God and on his promises. His best friend was a Canaanite, and he had married a Canaanite wife, something his fathers had warned against. Judah immersed himself in the Canaanite way of life. He was well on the way to assimilating with them. 
You see the results of Judah's waywardness in the next generation. His sons, Ur and Onan, were wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and he put them to death. The only ray of hope in Judah's family comes from Tamar, Ur's wife. God uses her in a remarkable way to preserve Judah's family line. It's through Tamar that God shows his redeeming grace to Judah. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. God uses Tamar to further Judah's family line so that ultimately Jesus can be born of this royal line. We'll consider how Tamar deceives Judah, how Judah condemns Tamar, and how God provides life. Genesis 38 is broken up into two parts. The first 11 verses take place over many years. During this time, Judah leaves home and makes friends in the Canaanite community. He enters into a mixed marriage and has three sons with the daughter of Shua. His sons grow up and Judah finds a wife for his firstborn, Ur. In the course of time, Judah's own wife dies. Thus, Genesis 38, 1 through 11, describes a period of 20 or 30 or even more years. In contrast, our text, which is made up of the rest of this chapter, all takes place within a year's time. Thus, the author makes it clear that the focus of this chapter is on what happens between Tamar and Judah. To understand what happens in our text, we need to know a little bit about the context. In the Old Covenant, receiving children and carrying on the family name was very important. God promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not only did God promise to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, he also promised that the coming Messiah would be born from his offspring. Considering the fact that Judah was disobedient in marrying a Canaanite woman, we wonder if the Lord would ever bless them with children. To our surprise, we see that in quick succession, they received three children. Yet there are hints that not all is well in Judah's family. His firstborn son is called Ur, which, if you reverse the spelling, means evil. His third son, Shelah, is born at Chizib, which means town of lies. Yet at least outwardly, things appear well. Judah receives three sons to carry on the family line. When he has grown up, Judah finds a wife for his son, Ur. Her name was Tamar. Tamar's name means palm tree. And in the Song of Solomon, it's associated with beauty and with fruitfulness. Yet Tamar is not immediately fruitful in her marriage, although this is through no fault of her own. The author of Genesis writes, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Not since the days of Noah and the flood, 
Or Lot in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, has God taken the life of one who displeased him? In those cases, it was groups of people who were annihilated. Ur is the first scripture, the first individual in scripture whom God kills. Ur's death leaves Tamar, a childless widow. A man who died childless in Israel might miss out on God's pledge to give his people many offspring and would leave his widow destitute, especially as she grew older and had no sons to provide for her. Thus the Lord made a gracious provision for such situations. The dead man's brother was responsible for marrying his sister-in-law. The first son they bore was considered to be his dead brother's child. This kept the brother's name and family line from vanishing, and at the same time ensured that the childless widow was provided for. This arrangement was called the Leveret marriage. We see it coming back in the days of Naomi and Ruth. So Judah tells his second son, Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan abused what was supposed to be a duty of kindness and provision for Tamer. He used Tamer for his own personal sexual gratification, but he refused to make her pregnant. He knew that if he did so, the child born would be considered Ur's son. That son would be considered the firstborn. He would get a double share of Judah's estate. If such a son were never born, Onan would be next in line. He would get the place of honor in Judah's family. Thus, this greedy and selfish man refused to raise up offspring for his brother. God saw his wickedness and put him to death also. With only one son left, Judah faces a difficult predicament. According to the customs of the day, it would have been proper for him to give Tamar to his youngest son. But Judah has become superstitious. He refuses to see that the Lord has put his sons to death because of their wickedness. Instead, he thinks that Tamar is in some way to blame for their deaths, that she's some kind of bad luck charm. So Judah said to Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. Here Judah shirked his responsibility to take care of his son's widow. Yet Tamar quietly obeys. She goes to live in her father's house. Judah, however, has no intention of giving Tamar to Shelah. This leaves Tamar in limbo. She is betrothed to Shelah and cannot marry anyone else. It also leaves Judah without anyone to carry on his family line. He cannot get another wife for Shelah without admitting that his son was old enough to fulfill his obligation to Tamar. If nothing changes, Judah's family line would be wiped out. He would die without descendants. In the course of time, Judah's wife died. The expression in the course of time literally says, after many days. Sheila has grown up, and Judah has refused to give her to Tamar. 
Years have passed and Tamar languishes in her father's house, a forgotten widow without any prospects for the future. Judah went up to his sheep shearers together with his good friend Hira the Adullamite. The hard work of sheep shearing was often accompanied by a festival noted for its partying. It often involved excessive drinking and sexual immorality, a bit like students heading for sunny destinations on spring break. Apparently, Judah's sexual appetite was well known. Tamer decides to do something about her desperate circumstances. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. She presented herself as if she were a prostitute at the entrance to Anaim on the road to Timnah. Her reason for doing so is specifically mentioned in our text. She saw that Sheila was grown up and that she had not been given to him in marriage. Her desire was to raise up a son according to the Leveret marriage customs of the day. Judah came along. He thought she was a prostitute and approached her asking to have sex with her. Our text specifically states Judah did not know that this was his daughter-in-law. Tamer responded by asking him what he would give her in payment. He promised her a young goat from the flock. Since he did not have that with him, she asked for something in pledge. After asking what she wanted, Judah consented to give her his signet ring and cord, along with a staff that was in his hand. The signet was a type of seal. It was a mark of personal identification worn on a cord around a, man's around a man's neck. Judah's staff was a symbol of authority. It had a curved top with a mark of his ownership. Thus, Tamar secured the equivalent of Judah's wallet, complete with driver's license and credit cards. She had what she needed, the means to personally identify Judah. Now it's significant that Judah slept with Tamar at Anaim. The name of that town literally means the opening of the eyes. Judah's eyes were closed. He does not recognize Tamar as the woman he slept with. But spiritually, Judah's eyes were also closed. He continues to march on the pathway of sin, but he's completely blinded to that fact. Judah was wrong to leave his family and make friendships with the worldly Canaanites. He was wrong to marry a Canaanite wife. He was blinded to the fact that he had not raised his family in the fear of God. He did not recognize that his oldest two sons were evil and that it was the Lord himself who put them to death. He thought Tamer was the problem. He had shoved her off to go back to her own family. He did not recognize the unjust manner in which he had dealt with her. Beloved, this often happens as we walk down the pathway of sin. We may do certain things we know are not right, but we find ways of justifying our actions. 
Everyone drinks a bit too much once in a while. Why make such a big deal about premarital sex? Everyone's doing it. When facing relationship difficulties, we cast the blame on the other party without being willing to take responsibility for what we have done wrong. As we progress in sinful ways, we gradually silence our conscience by ignoring its warnings, by making excuses for ourselves. In Romans 1, Paul speaks about those who live, how those who live in ungodly ways suppress the truth. Over time, those who continue to walk in sinful ways become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. In such circumstances, we distance ourselves from God and from His Holy Word. We don't read our Bibles. And we avoid coming to church because deep down we know that what we're doing is sinful. Beloved, if we pursue that kind of lifestyle, God will, at least for a time, give us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. To others, it will become obvious that our life is out of control. But we will be mostly unaware, caught in sinful blindness. That was the state Judah was in. We'll see this further in our second point, and we'll see how Judah condemns Tamar. Tamar has set a trap for Judah. Due to his sinful blindness, he has fallen headlong into it. The fool not only showed his sinfulness by sleeping with what he thought was a prostitute, he even gave her his personal insignia as collateral for a little goat. Immediately after having sex with Judah, Tamar arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on her garments of widowhood. After that, she returned to her father's house. Our text makes it plain, Tamar was certainly no common prostitute. She had but one aim, raising up an heir for her dead husband so that she could also be restored to a rightful place in Judah's family. The Lord saw Tamar. He caused her to conceive a child through her sexual union with Judah. Judah, of course, wants his signet ring and staff back as soon as possible. Perhaps he was embarrassed to be seen with a prostitute, and so he sent his Canaanite friend to recover a pledge from her. But a problem arose. Hira could not find Tamer, and when asking the townspeople about the temple prostitute who was at Anaim, they said there was no prostitute there. Upon relating this to Judah, he decides it was not worth making this into a big issue. Judah doesn't want to become a common laughingstock. Well, three months later, Judah was told, Tamer, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Judah is very judgmental about her actions. He said, bring her out and let her be burned. Without even granting her a hearing, he imposes the most severe punishment upon her. Judah holds Tamer responsible for the death of his two sons. He had promised to give her his last son, Sheila, but he has not done so because he was afraid Sheila would die as well. 
Judah's family line is in jeopardy. And in Judah's mind, Tamar is the only one standing in the way. Now, there's an opportunity to get rid of her. It would mean that finally Shelah could get married to someone else. And so Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah is so hypocritical in his judgment. He had taken his first wife in lust. It's clear he had a reputation for sleeping around. Otherwise, Tamer would not have been able to set a trap for him. Unwittingly, he was the father of her child. But Judah remains blind to his own sins. It's often people who are unaware of their own sinfulness, who are the most judgmental of others. How's that with you, beloved? Are you quick to make judgments about other people? Do you understand why you're inclined to make such judgments? Often when people are judgmental, they're insecure. We blame and we accuse others to turn the attention away from ourselves. In the first verses of Matthew 7, Jesus taught us, saying, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, Jesus was not prohibiting us from ever making a judgment about another person. We do have to make distinctions between what's right and what's wrong. In the civil realm, police officers and judges do need to make judgments in order to charge and convict people of crimes. In church life, family members and friends need to confront the sinful behavior of fellow church members. And at times, elders are called to exercise church discipline for unrepentant sin. But Jesus was not talking about those kind of circumstances. He was warning us against making casual judgments about one another. He said that you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. After saying this, Jesus asked, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We need to recognize our own sins and shortcomings before we go around judging and accusing others. And beloved, when others commit serious sins, we need to show mercy towards them, thinking, but for the grace of God, there go I. In our text, Tamer waits until the very last moment to defend herself. As she was being brought out to be executed, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and cord and the staff. Suddenly, Judah's eyes are opened. Now he clearly sees what happened at Anaim, the town whose name means the opening of the eyes. After years of blaming everyone else for his own problems, Judah recognizes his own guilt. Judah had lied to Tamar, denying her rights and shunning her. 
He was guilty of exactly the same sexual sin for which he wanted to have her killed. However, what Tamar had done out of desperation to raise up a child, Judah had done only to satisfy his own sinful desires. At the same time, his blindness about the cause of his son's death was exposed. He thought that they died because of Tamar, that she was somehow cursed, some kind of bad luck charm. But he had slept with her, and he was still alive. It was not Tamar's fault that Ur and Onan had perished. It was for their own wickedness that God had killed them. But there's more, beloved. Tamer's words, please identify these, exactly parallel what Judah and his brothers said to Jacob when they brought him Joseph's bloodied coat. Thus Judah is reminded of his sin of selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt and of deceiving his father. He's reminded of why he ran away from home when confronted with his dad's ongoing grief. God used Tamer to convict Judah of his own sins. He confesses, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. The next time we meet Judah, we'll see he's a completely changed man. God truly opened his eyes to his sin. He brought about a mighty change in Judah's life. Yeah, beloved, we should not underestimate the painful experience this would have been for Judah. He was publicly unmasked as a judgmental, harsh, self-centered, and hypocritical man. The reason this was necessary because he was, was because he had walked on a pathway of sinful blindness. When we walk on the pathway of sin, when we again and again turn a blind eye to what we're doing, when we begin to believe our own lies, beloved, there's only two possible outcomes. Either God will stop us in our tracks by exposing our sin and humbling us, or else he may give us over to our sin and ultimately will end up in hell. Be aware of your sins and shortcomings. Repent of them. Truly change your way of life. Or you too will reap the consequences of your wrongdoing. This brings us to our final point, how God provides life. In our text, we can get caught up in all that Judah and Tamar do and fail to see that through it all, God is at work. God accomplished something wonderful through this Canaanite woman, Tamar, who married into Judah's family. Through her, he provided new life in Judah's family. At a time when Judah was without heirs, when it looked like his family line might die out. She not only conceived, but at the time of her labor, it became evident that there were twins in her, birth, in her womb. In those days, it was very important to determine who the firstborn son was. 
During childbirth, one of the twins put out a hand, and the midwife bound a crimson thread around his hand. He drew back his hand, and his brother was born first. She said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, he was called Perez. The child that should have been born second somehow bypassed the first. It's a reminder that God it's God who sovereignly chooses whom he will in his plan of salvation. Now, beloved, there's something really remarkable about the birth of Judah and Tamar's firstborn son. Perez will have a special role in salvation history. In Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his son, Judah receives the blessing of the firstborn son. Reuben forfeited his position by sleeping with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi are passed by because they were violent men who slaughtered the unsuspecting men of Shechem after Dinah was raped. You would think with all the sin in Judah's life, he also would be passed by. Yet Judah repented. God worked a mighty change in his life. And so it was through his family that the promised Messiah would be born. In Numbers 26, verse 20, the sons of Judah are listed. His sons, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, are all mentioned by their clans. Judah's family thrived in Israel. At the end of the book of Ruth, when Ruth is married to Boaz, the elders at the gate bless them by saying, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. At the end of Ruth, the generations of Perez are mentioned. And in the 10th generation, King David is mentioned as coming from his line. Our reading from Matthew 1 shows that Perez is one of the forerunners of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, we see God's redeeming grace in providing life for his people. Not just physical life, by providing Judah with children and grandchildren. In our text, God does something far greater. He uses Judah living in sinful blindness and Tamar, a Canaanite woman who had married into his family, to open the way for Jesus Christ to come into the world. Despite so much dysfunction and sin in Judah's family, God works through it all to provide a redeemer for his people. Jesus Christ came into the world to save his people from their sins, that we might live in covenant fellowship with our God. Beloved Judah and Tamar had no idea about how and why God directed their lives as he did. In the same way, we are often unaware of God's plans and his purposes for our lives. Like Judah, there are times when we try to run away from our problems, when we make big mistakes, 
When we live in sinful blindness, in some ways we are all damaged goods, profoundly broken people. Yet that is precisely why Jesus came. Just as Perez broke through, so Jesus is the breakthrough son. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus brought grace, acceptance, transformation and hope for us by taking our blame and our shame and putting it to death on the cross. It's through Christ's righteousness that we are made acceptable to God and welcomed into his family. What an awesome God we serve. Let us praise him for his redeeming grace and let us live humbly before our God. Amen. In response to the gospel message, we're going to sing together from hymn 17. Hymn 17 is the Song of Mary. Now, this morning as we sing it, please do so from the perspective of Tamer. We'll sing stanzas 2, 3, and 6. We'll do so standing. <laughs> 